Pray with me. Father in heaven, we, we come together today on your day, the Lord's day, to worship you, to praise you, God. To recognize that you are king and you are God in our lives. Lord, I pray this morning that you would just cast away all the distractions in our lives so we as your church can listen to your word, study your word, grow in the image of Christ together. Lord, this is my prayer this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All right, everybody can have a seat. And the oldest group of freshwater kids, you guys are dismissed. Get out of here, you. Go. All right. Hey, um, so uh, it, this morning, um, we're going to be studying in Philippians in chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Turn in Philippians to chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can use a pew Bible, which are in the seat backs. Grab that, and we're going to be on page 980. That's 980. Hey, my name is Nick Swoboda. If I've not met you yet, uh, I'd love to meet you after the service. Just grab me. Uh, and we can, uh, we can have a chat and get to know each other. That'd be great. I'm a partner here at Freshwater, and I'm just so thrilled and excited to be up here today and uh, preaching the Word and getting to share the Word with you guys today, because I love this church. If you're a guest with us today, we're just really, really happy that you're here, right? We're so happy uh, that you're here to share the Lord's Day with us, and we just want to say welcome first and foremost. Also, if you're a guest with us today, know that it is our tradition to normally do our offering during the final song right after, the responsive song right after this sermon, okay? At that time, the service host will come forward, they'll pass the baskets, um, and so uh, just know that you're, if you're a guest, we don't in any way expect you to give, okay? It's, it's, this is a time for our uh, regular attendees and the partners of Freshwater to give their regular tithes and offerings. There are three ways to give at Freshwater, of course. Uh, that first way is through the offering basket, the second way through the kiosk in the back, and the third way is online at freshwaterjc.com. All right, so last week, if you were here with us, then you know that we celebrated what? You celebrated Easter, right? Holy Week and Easter. And it's a great time of the year for Christians, right? Because it's a time we can come together and we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross and how he subsequently rose from the grave, defeating death. And Easter is just a wonderful time because we remind ourselves that the battle has already been won, amen? Last week, we learned how Jesus took our place on the cross, and Pastor Joshua did a great job explaining how when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, our sins are forgiven, we can be reconciled to an almighty creator, right? This morning, as we read and we study uh, chapter 1 in Philippians, we're going to be in verse 12 through 30, we're going to see what happens next. What can I expect after I place my faith and trust in Jesus. Now, I know there's a lot of Christians in the room that have been Christians for like 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And for you, this might seem like, oh, okay, I've already been doing this for a very long time. But I can promise you that today, our study is going to be beneficial for everybody, whether you've been a Christian for one day or 50 years. It doesn't matter. We're going to do a little introspection today. And before we get tracking, I want you to know that I'm going to ask you some tough, tough questions. All right? And the point is to get you to deal with where you're at 
in your walk with Christ, okay? I want you to know that I'm not asking these questions because I think very lowly of this church, okay? It's actually quite the opposite. I think this church has a heart for Jesus. This church is looking always to grow in our relationship with Christ. And so I'm absolutely certain and confident that when we really convict our hearts, that just serves to grow and move this church forward. So the point is not to make you feel like a horrible human being. The point is to get you to lean back into Jesus and ask the Holy Spirit to overcome some of the obstructions in your life that may be keeping you from living for Christ. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus said, you must deny yourself. So that means being a Christian isn't simply just raising your hand, asking Jesus to come in your heart, and then using the power he has to accomplish your plans. No. In order to be a true blue Christian, you must deny yourself. That is, stop living for yourself. Now, I know this is contrary to the world that we live in today, right? The culture around us is always telling us to live for ourselves. You can't turn on the TV without seeing, follow your dreams. Or maybe something like, be true to yourself. Scroll through social media and you'll see nothing but make yourself happy. Make yourself happy. Inspiring as these messages seem, they are anti-Christian. Jesus said, stop living for yourself. Now, the world would like us to believe that our mission is to achieve individual happiness at all costs. You live for you, I'll live for me. Hey, live and let live, right? Wrong. That is not how we are called to live as Christians. And the Apostle Paul actually sums up how we're supposed to live in one simple verse in our study today, and I'm going to give it to you early. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for me, To live is Christ, and to die is gain. So in order to be a Christian, we must deny ourselves. That is, we must stop living for ourselves, and we must live for Christ. That means Jesus' mission is now our mission. We don't have individual purposes, but one purpose, and that is to glorify God by advancing his gospel, his truth. Let me say that again. We don't have individual purposes anymore. We have one purpose, and that is to glorify God by advancing his gospel or his truth. That's your mission as individuals, and that's our mission as a church. Seems easy enough, right? (laughs) Not really. Contrary to, you know, popular altar calls from some of the popular evangelists today that would just tell you to raise your hand and ask Jesus to come into your heart, living for Christ is really, really hard really hard. It's extremely difficult. Why? Because we're living for, when we're living for Christ, we're doing so in a fallen world, right? We can easily forget, to the credit of our adversary, by the way, that we are in a spiritual battle all the time. We have an adversary that is desperately trying to make us fail. But today, we're going to learn that we don't have to be afraid because we have confidence in the work that God is doing in our lives to sanctify us and to edify his people. Now, just to clarify, the term gospel simply means good news. And when we study the lives of the apostles of the early church, our mission as a church comes into focus. We are to spread the good news that there is a way to reconcile ourselves to the almighty, perfect creator through Jesus Christ. 
Now today I hope through our time together that you ask yourself whether or not you're actually living your life for Christ by advancing his gospel. Or are you allowing yourself to be hindered by some type of obstruction? In our study today, we will, we will find or identify three obstructions to advancing the gospel. Okay? We're going to highlight those obstructions, and then we're going to make note of characteristics we should seek in place of those obstructions. And then after that, I'll wrap things up quickly by noting three outward expressions or evidences in our lives that we, sh- we are indeed living for Christ. And you can use those evidences as a benchmark to judge your own life. Before we get tracking through our scripture, though, just indulge me in a moment. Uh, I want to share a quick story with you. I think this story is going to put the idea or the concept of mission in focus for us, okay? So in the late 19th century, war with Spain was imminent. The year was 1898. Some of you probably remember it well. All right, good. Some of you are still with me, good. All right, President McKinley was largely concerned about the Spanish occupation of Cuba, He knew from recent intelligence that the Cubans had formed a resistance led by a man named General Garcia. The president desperately needed to deliver a message to Garcia, but he had no idea where to find him or how to communicate with him because General Garcia was off somewhere in the Cuban jungle. One of the colonels who worked in the president's cabinet at the time spoke up and said to the president, Sir, I know a man who can find Garcia and get him your message. Soon after that conversation, the colonel left the president's office and quickly hunted down Lieutenant Rowan. Rowan received his orders thereafter. Lieutenant, you are to take this message, land on the shores of occupied Cuba, and deliver it to General Garcia. Now, a man named Elbert Hubbard published a book about this affair in 1899, and he titled it A Message to Garcia. In Hubbard's book, he writes... The fellow by name of Rowan took the letter, sealed it up in an oilskin pouch, strapped it over his heart, and four days landed by night off the coast of Cuba from an open boat, disappeared into the jungle, and in three weeks came out on the other side of the island, having traversed a hostile country on foot and delivered his letter to Garcia. Hubbard continues, The point I wish to make is this. McKinley gave Rowan a letter to be delivered to Garcia. Rowan took the letter and did not ask. Where is he at? Now Hubbard communi- or culminates his point in his statement a little bit later in the book, and he says, It is not book learning young men need, nor instruction about this and that, but a stiffening of the vertebrae which will cause them to be loyal to a trust, to act promptly, concentrate their energies, do the thing, carry a message to Garcia. In a culture that really champions free will, and free thinking, we can over-exaggerate the need for excessive information before we act, can't we? We're people who are acculturated to ask why, why, where, where, how, how, when, when. We're guilty, or at least I know I'm guilty, of reasoning our way out of doing God's work. Let me be clear. God has given us a mission. In Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28 and verse 19, Jesus says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. We have a mission. Go, teach, baptize. Yet too often we fail to act. Oh, we, we will come to church, right? But we fail to go. 
we fail to teach the gospel. And when Christians fail to act, we fail to advance the gospel, and we fail at our mission, which is living for Christ. Shouldn't we instead be like Garcia? Shouldn't we be living with absolute loyalty and abandonment to the mission that God has given us? What can be more important than God's mission for us? All too often when we fail, it's because we're either too afraid, we're too selfish, or we have too much doubt in our own hearts. And Lieutenant Rowan was none of these things. That's why he was successful against all odds. The Apostle Paul also consistently provides us with an image of how we should live with, as Christians, right? He, that, that, in that way, we should live with courage, selflessness, and confidence. My hope is that by the end of our time today, we can recognize the evidence or lack of evidence in our own lives. So we can be honest with ourselves and answer the question, am I really living for Christ or am I letting something stop me? All right, we're going to shift gears now. We're going to get into uh, Philippians chapter 1. First, just please understand that the letter to the Philippian church was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. The setting is really important as you read through a lot of the epistles that, to know that Paul was in prison. Uh, so to kind of give you a little background, if you want some background later, you can read Acts chapter 21 and 22. Uh, similar to the reason that uh, Jesus was taken prisoner, Paul was also taken prisoner because he was trying to advance the gospel or advance the truth. He had come back to Jerusalem to meet with the elders of the Christian church, and they warned him. They said, hey, the authorities of the Jewish temple are looking for you. They think that you're, you, you completely abandoned Mosaic law, and they think you're out there preaching against it to the Gentile church, and they want to capture you, they want to beat you, they want to kill you. So they told him, hey, they said, hey, go and, and, and perform this ritual cleansing, okay? And that will uh, uh, maybe prove to the Jewish authorities that you're still after seeking God. So Paul did just that, right? He wouldn't perform the ritual cleansing, but the mob wasn't convinced. So they nabbed him up, right? They beat him. And it was actually the Roman authorities that intervened and took Paul prisoner. Because the Roman authorities were mostly concerned at the time about keeping the peace, right? So they grabbed him up, and they, were, they, they arrested him for being a rubble rouser or a troublemaker. Uh, they put him in prison, and it was from his prison cell that Paul would write the churches under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the churches that he planted in the Gentile world. And actually, those letters are now what makes up most of the New Testament, right? So when, when Paul was in prison, he wrote the church in Philippi, and he did so to encourage them to continue in the mission of Christ. And today, as we study chapter 1, we're going to identify three obstructions that keep us from our mission of advancing the gospel. And after which, we're going to talk about three outward expressions, or let's call them, call them evidences of our faith. So the first three obstructions are fear, selfishness, and doubt. Instead of fear, we want courage. And instead of selfishness, we want to be selfless. And instead of doubt, we want confidence. So let's get started. I'm going to read a few verses. I'll talk through them as we move through our scripture. The first obstruction we're going to be talking about today is fear. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says to the Philippians from his prison cell, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Okay, stop right there. Paul starts off in verse 12, noting that his imprisonment served to advance the gospel. Now, I would say that's pretty contrary to the whole reason why they put him in prison, don't you think? I'm pretty sure that they didn't want to continue to advance the gospel. Paul was thrown in prison in order to stop the mission, to stop the spread of the gospel. The Jews that put him there, they didn't just want to silence his voice. They were trying to enforce a system of deterrence. They're playing the long game here. This is a strategic play. Cut the head off the snake and watch the Gentile church fall. They wanted to silence the entire movement. Now imagine you were a Christian in the first century and you found out that Paul, the great apostle, was thrown in prison. And this is a time period where the Romans are still crucifying people. How would you feel? Right? Would you fear? Maybe we should cool it for a while and preach in this Jesus guy, right? This is called deterrence. And it's the same system we use today in our criminal justice processes, right? When we put people in prison for doing something wrong, we don't just want to punish them. We also want to, to deter other people from doing the same offense, right? We want people to fear the prison cell. But Paul doesn't fear he doesn't fear the prison cell. In fact, he sees his suffering as a reason to encourage others. In verse 13, Paul says, the whole imperial guard has come to know that he's in prison for Christ. What he's essentially saying is that everyone understands that Paul is in prison, not as a, an act of true justice, but as an attempt to stop the spread of the gospel, to stop the mission. Yet in Paul's circumstances, his sacrificial faith leads people to ask questions. Why? Why is he in prison and why will he not relent from preaching Jesus? If you read Acts, you, you quickly come to understand that Paul could have avoided being captured very easily. He was warned by the brothers. He could have fled Jerusalem. If he was afraid, if he was scared, he could have left, right? But Paul did not fear earthly chains. In fact, Paul tells his protege Timothy what he thinks about fear when he said, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul's fearlessness was contagious, and this is what happens when, when Christians are bold enough to step out in faith for the gospel. Fear falls away and courage abounds. In verse 13, we see that Paul says, because of his imprisonment, the brothers are much more bold to speak the word with word without fear. But we just said that people go to jail in order to, to deter others from committing the same offenses, right? So how is Paul's imprisonment making other people more bold and courageous? Well, I'll tell you why. Because faith that works is faith that really works. Paul put his faith to work to live for Christ and to advance the gospel, and nothing in his life mattered more than his mission for Christ. Laying fear and worldly obstructions behind him, he pursued the mission of advancing the gospel at all costs. 
And in fact, courage seems to be the innate human response to any type of condition where our conviction runs so deep that our lives are changed, doesn't it? Consider the people who were inspired by Martin Luther King to speak out against racial injustice after he was murdered. These people could have, and some did, received the same fate. Even today, people are all too ready to cast aside fear to pursue a meaningful cause. Police run into danger. Soldiers pursue the sound of the guns. People lock arms in arms all around the world, protesting injustice. This is the picture we see. This is the conviction we see in the Apostle Paul when he's pursuing his mission to advance the gospel. So let me ask you a question. Don't we preach the same gospel? Don't we have the same mission today? Where's our conviction? Why then are we so afraid of what the world is going to think about us? What have we to fear? Like FDR said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. If God is for us, who can be against us? We should never fear advancing the gospel. It should be the natural state of living for Christ. So let me ask you, is fear hindering you from advancing the gospel? Maybe you're afraid of losing your job. Maybe you're afraid of losing friends. Maybe you're afraid of how people will perceive you. You're protecting some type of self-image. Maybe you're afraid that someone's just going to ask you a question you don't know the answer to. Whatever your fear is, whatever it is, it's not helping. So if you're being convicted by the Holy Spirit on this matter this morning, I implore you, don't cast that aside. Meditate on it. Allow it to convict you. We're going to talk about steps you can take a little bit later as I conclude this sermon. But let it convict you. Don't cast it aside. Maybe fear is a big obstruction in your life. I know it, it's been a really big obstruction in my life. But maybe for you it's less about fear and it's more about priorities. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a statement that if interpreted wrongly can be completely misunderstood because we are to do God's bidding. He's not to do ours. Let's look back in the Bible. We're going to look at the second obstruction now. The second obstruction is selfishness. Look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, I love these verses. These are often verses used by preachers to check their heart and make sure they're doing their preaching for the right reasons, right? 
But these verses are beneficial, beneficial for us all. The apostle draws comparisons in this text. Let's look at them. In verse 15, Paul compares those that preach in goodwill to those that preach the gospel in envy and rivalry. And then in verse 16 and 17, he furthers that comparison and says those that preach in goodwill do so from a heart of love, while those who preach in envy and rivalry do specifically to afflict Paul or cause him distress. And Paul calls these people selfish. Now, before we go any further, we need to note there's no evidence that these people were, were preaching a false gospel. In fact, Paul is pretty good about calling people out when they're preaching a false gospel in his other letters. So we can assume that these people are indeed preaching a true gospel. So what's their offense? Selfishness. And Paul even doubles down here and he says, either way, the gospel of Jesus is being preached, so that's a reason to rejoice. So why is there a concern? I'll tell you why. Because there's always a risk when we do the right things for the wrong reasons. In this case, the risk is to the long-term advancement of the gospel. Consider this. Can you think of a time when someone did something really nice for you, but you found out later that they did whatever they did for selfish ambition? What did it do to the credibility of their work in your mind when you found out? It created doubt, right? Doubt that they were truly sincere people. Doubt that they really had your best interest in mind. Doubt that you could ever trust them again in the future. So when we act, even doing the things we're supposed to do, but we act out of selfishness, we put the mission at risk. We put the gospel at risk. So we have to check our hearts. We have to check our own selfish desires or they can become a stumbling block in our mission to advance the gospel. All right, so now we've talked about two obstacles, right? We've talked about fear that we want to replace with courage and we've talked about selfishness which we want to replace with selflessness. But selfishness can lead to doubt, which is actually the final obstruction we're going to talk about this morning. Look back at your Bibles in verse 18. I'm going to start by reading halfway through verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as Christ will be honored, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. All right, so here we have the words of a man who's sitting in a prison cell and certainly thinking to himself that he's facing an untimely execution. So what's missing? What's missing in his words? Doubt. Listen, Paul says things like, this will turn out for my deliverance, my eager expectation and hope. I will not be ashamed with full courage. This is not a man in doubt. This is not a man with a broken spirit sitting in a dark, cold prison cell. This is a man that is confident in his choices. In fact, he's so confident in Jesus Christ that he can honestly say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To die is better. How many of us can say the same? Are we obedient even to the point of death? 
Sometimes I feel like our church culture is a lot like watching TV. We turn on a program, we enjoy it, it makes us feel good, we're happy to keep watching, but as soon as we become uncomfortable, we just want to turn it off and walk away. We can easily forget that we're given the same gospel message Paul carried. We have the same mission that Paul had in the first century. We carry the message. And like Paul, we do so with confident expectation that we will not be put to shame. That on the day of Christ, we will rejoice with the full communion of saints who have persevered. And until that day, we will not fear. We will not be overcome by selfish ambition. And we will be confident in the truth. So now I have to ask you this question. How confident are you in your faith? Do you really believe that to die is gain? Let that question just convict your heart for a second. Because if we really believe, if we really truly believe that to die is better, wouldn't that longing for death change how we really lived for Christ? Paul was a man with no doubt. None. We should seek to imitate his confidence. Our confidence should make us long to be with Jesus, but we should also feel attention. We should recognize that there is work still for us to do. But the first question you have to ask yourself is, what is that work? We all have the same mission, right? But we're all given different abilities to perform that mission. Some advance the gospel through service. Some advance the gospel through preaching. Some through teaching. Some through giving. Some through encouraging. We all advance the gospel through the word. I urge you all to seek your gift and use it. In using it, you will find confidence. I promise. The more you use your gift, the more doubt will give way to hope. And the more you will find your true purpose and living for Christ. Okay, so we talked about three obstructions this morning. And we saw how the Apostle Paul displayed courage and selflessness and confidence instead of fear, selfishness, and doubt. These characteristics are necessary for us to be an active part of achieving the mission that Paul was pursuing in the first century, the same mission that we have today, advancing the gospel. Now, we're going to go over a little application in a moment, but first I have one more question for you to consider before we move through. And I want you to stop and just consider this and let this this question convict your heart. How would the church look if every Christian on earth lived for Christ like you do? Would it be a church that's conquered by fear? Would it be a church that's conquered by selfishness or conquered by doubt? Would the gospel be advanced at all? You are the church, and you have a mission to advance the gospel, advance the message. Are you courageous enough today to recommit your life to that mission? So you might say, all right, you made me feel like I've I've got some improvements. How do I change? How do we change the condition of our hearts? How do we put on the characteristics of courage and selflessness and confidence in Christ? Well, the first step is to identify exactly where we're deficient. 
Paul says earlier in his message in verse 9 and 10 in the, to the Philippians, he says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So here Paul speaks about love, knowledge, and discernment. We are called to discern the conditions of our hearts. So with the knowledge you've received today, I'd urge you, I'd urge each of us to discern whether fear or selfishness or doubt is keeping us from advancing the gospel and ultimately living for Christ. Reflect on the work that God is doing in your life and ask him to reveal where you're deficient. And then confess your sin to a brother or sister and ask for prayer. Pray. Pray for courage, selflessness, and confidence in Christ. And finally, I'm going to encourage you to read verses 22 through 30 on your own because we don't have time to go through them today. I'm a little long-winded, and I apologize about that. You're going to find that as you read those on your own, three different evidences are going to pop out at you that are evident in our lives if we are, in fact, living for Christ. The first is fruitful labor. Are you laboring fruitfully for Christ? The second is a gospel-worthy manner of living. And the third is obedient suffering. You can use these concepts as benchmarks to evaluate your life when you reflect on this later. Ask yourself, do I feel like Paul does? Is my life's mission to labor for Christ? And will I endure anything to that end? So again, we talked about three obstructions to advancing the gospel and living for Christ. And those obstructions were what? Fear, selfishness, and doubt. And instead, we want courage, selflessness, and confidence. All right, so we're just about done this morning, but before we conclude, I just want to make a couple things clear. First, everything I said this morning doesn't matter one iota if you're not following Jesus, okay? So if you're a guest with us today and you're not following Jesus, I just want to encourage you to join our family, okay? You can do that by simply repenting and believing, repenting, believing. It's the same call that each one of us has uh, has, has had on our lives at one point or another. Let's repent, turn away from that which you've placed your faith and trust in and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You don't have to do anything special. You can sit right there, repent and believe right where you're at. If you have done that this morning, I encourage you to respond in one of two ways. When you came in, you received a worship guide. Inside that worship guide, there's a connect card. You can fill that out Check the block that says, I want to follow Jesus. Drop it in the offering baskets when it comes around here during the responsive song. Or drop it off at the connect table on your way out, and someone will get in contact with you.